Good morning. Our reading this morning comes from the book of Romans, uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 27, and then all the way through chapter 4. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then only the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. 
The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Carmen. Hello, everyone. Uh, For those of you I haven't met, my name is Ethan. Uh, I'm trying to get myself situated here. I spilled coffee all over my sermon notes this morning, so we might might have some mix-ups that'll keep it exciting, but we'll see how this goes. Uh, So the title for this morning's sermon is Abraham as the Model of Faith. But as I've been uh, reading and reflecting on this passage in the book of Romans as a whole over the past few weeks, I've come to think that we might need to slightly amend the title. Because unlike the Castle Camelot in uh, a certain Monty Python film, if we can have the next slide, which is only a model, right? I've come to think that Abraham is not only a model in Romans 4. There's some more going on here, okay? So if we could amend the title on the next slide here. So Abraham is indeed someone who demonstrates a radical trust in God and someone who Paul clearly says we should follow as a model of our faith in Jesus. But not only this, there's also more that's happening here. As many of you will remember from last week, Paul has just made the claim that it's only by faith in Jesus that we are saved in every way a person can be saved. And in our passage this morning, Paul turns to Abraham's story to demonstrate how this centrality of faith is actually no new thing. Trusting God is and always has been the pathway to forgiveness, to new life, to partnering with God in his plan to redeem the world and set it aright. And in this way, Abraham's story shows how the Jews and the Gentiles are are actually on the same footing as followers of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your, your grace. We thank you for your power. And Lord, we just pray as we gather here this morning and and the sanctuary here and and online and in homes that you would unite us by your spirit, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, and that you would move us forward with, with bold and radical faith and bold and radical trust in you. Amen. Now, before we dive into our passage this morning, uh, let's, let's quickly recap some of the, the book, where we are so far. I can see some new faces here. We're a few weeks into our series, so let's make sure we're all on the same page here, right? So the book of Romans is a letter written by Paul to the church in Rome. Now, Paul was a Jewish religious leader. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, when the early church was starting to grow, Paul committed himself to stamping out the church, imprisoning and even killing Christians. But Paul has this radical encounter with Jesus, and he himself becomes a Christian, and his life just turns completely around, and he commits himself to spreading the good news of Jesus with an even greater zeal than he previously had for tearing it down. And although Paul is himself Jewish, 
He finds himself time and again reaching out to and, and preaching to and, and, and teaching the good news to uh, the Gentiles, to non-Jewish people throughout the Roman Empire. And the early church begins to grow as these multi-ethnic communities united by faith in Jesus. But with that, there's some questions and some tensions that arise in these communities. What does it look like for people of of all nations to follow Jesus, the the Jewish Messiah? Are the the Jewish laws like circumcision and dietary laws and Sabbath and the the sacrificial and festival calendars, are those still relevant? And and if so, to, to what extent and for whom? And in the book of Romans, this letter to the church in Rome, Paul responds to some of these conflicts and these questions. So in the opening chapters, he argues that whether you know and follow the laws and commandments that were given by Moses to the people of Israel or not, all of us, every single one of us, shares the same problem of sin. But just as Steve reminded us last week, and just as there's only one key problem we all face, there's also only one solution, trust in Jesus. And last week's passage, the passage reading, uh, leading just into what we just heard read this morning, Romans 3, 21 to 26, uh, through Jesus, we're saved in every way a person can be saved. All we have to do, all we can do for this is to trust in Jesus. That's what it all comes down to, is trust in Jesus. So Paul says this in Romans 3, 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And so, moving towards the close of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, Paul turns to Abraham. Again, not only as a model of what this kind of faith looks like, but also to respond to a very natural following question, which we read in Romans 3.31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Do we nullify the law by this faith? In other words, does faith overwrite the law? Does, Does it replace it? Does it go against it? Paul's response, second half of the verse, Not at all. Actually, we uphold the law by this faith. Now, this can be easy to miss, but part of what Paul is getting at here and and part of how he's making this argument is he's drawing attention to and playing with some different meanings of the word law, right? And if we kind of unpack that a little bit, that can help us understand how he's getting here and what he's getting at. So if we can go to the next one. So two meanings of the word law. So one is is the meaning of law that we most often think of, that we most often tend to have come to mind, right? So legal commandments. In this case, the the law is given to the people of Israel through, through Moses in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, things like the sacrificial system, things like the Ten Commandments, things like the Sabbath and circumcision, right? Okay, so that's one meaning of law. Another meaning of law, though, is actually just the title for the first five books of Scripture that we know of as the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, or Torah in Hebrew. Now, most of these books, when you read through them, they're not actually mostly laws. They're a collection of stories. They're an overarching narrative about God's people with laws in it. And they're called the Torah because although Torah can mean law, it can also just more broadly mean instruction or teaching, 
which kind of gets at this collection and what it's about, right? Now, to, to quote Abby, I'm not going to go into all the details here, uh, <laughs> but sometimes when you read the law or the law and the prophets in the New Testament, it can even be a shorthand way of referring to Scripture and, and even Scripture as a whole, as the Old Testament. Um, so Jesus sometimes will say, well, what does the law tell you? And then he'll quote the Psalms. So when Paul refers to the law here in the book of Romans, and especially here in chapter 3, sometimes he's referring to these legal commands given by Moses to the people of Israel. Sometimes he's referring to a collection of scripture, either Genesis through Deuteronomy, or maybe even a bigger set, or maybe even the whole Old Testament. And there's also another meaning of, Paul, uh, of law that Paul refers to in 327, but we won't go into that. Let's just focus on these ones. <laughs> we'll, we'll stop here, right? <laughs> so let's go back to Romans 321 and 31 with, with this in mind. And, and also just as a disclaimer, as with many things, this, this is how I would, I would read this now. There's, there's debate, there's disagreement, there's different perspectives, but maybe we can just start here this morning and, and you can come talk to me afterwards and I'd love to dialogue more. <laughs> but uh, so if we come back to Romans 321 and, and 331 with these two meanings of law and mind, right? So, but now, apart from the law, right, the legal commands, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets, scripture, testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And then the question, do we then nullify the legal commandments by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. We uphold scripture, and actually including the legal commands. So see what Paul's saying here? Experiencing God's righteousness, becoming part of his family, becoming part of his plan for redemption is entirely based on faith in Jesus apart from the law and commandments. However, this is actually consistent with the overarching message of the Old Testament. And trusting God is even at the heart of the legal codes themselves when we read them in the bigger story and put them in their context. So do we nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. And to prove this, Paul goes to the story of Abraham. So maybe we can kind of talk a little bit more about Abraham's story and some of the key observations that, that Paul makes there. So we're first introduced to Abraham, or Abram as he's called at that point in the story, in Genesis 11 in a genealogy. So we get a few details about Abram's father, his brothers. We, we learn that he's married to Sarai. That they're, and we're told from the very beginning that Abram and Sarai don't have any children. They're unable to conceive. But then out of nowhere, God speaks to Abram and he says this in Genesis 12. Go from your home country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's an amazing promise. And how does Abram respond? He leaves his home country. He leaves his people behind. He goes. He has faith not only that God will meet him in this present need and longing for a child, 
but also in the far off distance that God will make his descendants into a great nation. What becomes the nation of, of Israel? And we read about through the rest of the story, right? That, that he'll be renowned, that most radically through him, that the whole world will be blessed. And if that faith were not impressive enough, in the next verse we're given one extra little fact that Abram is 75 years old at this time. Now for, for anyone familiar with the story, this, it's easy to gloss over this detail. It's easy to think, oh yeah, I've heard it before. Abram and Sarah, they're, they're old. God promises them a child. They have faith, yada, yada, yada. Um, apologies to anyone over, I'm not saying you're old. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but just think about this. Just imagine if a decade after retirement, God says, okay, move to a new country, start a new life, and, and you're going to have a baby. It's, it's mind-boggling, but Abram believes, he trusts, and he acts on that trust in obedience. And a few chapters later in Genesis 15, God reassures Abram that he's with him. But Abram has questions. He still doesn't have a child. He's even planning his estate and, and and looking at things and realizing that a servant is next in line to inherit everything he has. But God reassures him. He says this in Genesis 15. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, there's a lot more to the story of, of Abraham in Genesis 11 to 25, more than we have time for this morning. There's ups and downs in his and Sarah's story of faith, to say the very, very least. On two occasions, Abraham is afraid that people are going to kill him and take his wife Sarah, since she is so beautiful. And the second story, Sarah is about 90. Apparently, she's aged very, very well. Um, but anyway, the plan that Abraham concocts is, that, is to tell everyone that, that Sarah is his sister, not his wife, and that everyone will treat him really well on her behalf. Now, on top of being a little, little more than unfair to Sarah and a little more than dishonest, uh, this is putting God's promise in jeopardy, right? I mean, it's... It's a little challenging to have a baby when you're trying to convince everyone that your spouse is your sibling. And between these two stories, when time goes on and they still have no child, they decide that Abraham should have a baby with their slave Hagar as a surrogate. And unsurprisingly, this just results in a whole host of injustices, family rifts, and total brokenness. So needless to say, Abraham's faith is, is far, far, far from perfect. But there are key moments when Abraham does demonstrate a, an amazing trust in God and that God meets him there in it. When he leaves his home country, when at the age of, of 99, God tells him that he'll have a child in the following year and, and Abraham trusts it. And even after Isaac, their son, is finally born, he, he trusts God through a test of faith in which Isaac's life is put on the line. And if we come back to one of these key moments here in Genesis 15, 6, at the foundation of the story, there's that small but powerful line that Paul picks up on. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. 
So Paul's arguing here in Romans 4 that that righteousness, being set right with God, being set right with one another in the world around us has always been a gift. Being invited into the family of God has always been a gift. The only way to get it is to trust God for it. It's never been something we could earn. But even though in that sense it is apart from the law, as in the legal codes, righteousness by faith in God is entirely in line with the law, as in the story of Scripture. Paul quotes the gift of forgiveness that David celebrates in the Psalms to show this is the case. And he turns to the story of Abraham to show, one, that it worked this way even before the legal codes existed, and two, that this applies to, to Jews and Gentiles in the same way. Because crucially, all of this happens before Abraham is circumcised. Now, of course, this, this raises more questions. Okay? What, what then was the purpose of the legal codes and commandments given by Moses? What, is there any ongoing particular plan for Israel as God's chosen people? Do, what do we have now in Jesus that wasn't available before? What's, what will we have when he comes back, right? And for that, stay tuned. Uh, remember, we're, we're just four chapters into a 16-chapter letter, so there's, there's more to come. But what is clear at this point, and what I think Paul is saying here, is that, that Abraham not only models what radical trust in God can look like, but his story also shows how Jews and Gentiles are on equal footing as members of God's family, as recipients of righteousness by faith, and as partners with God in his plan for the restoration of the world. And with that in mind, there there are two ways that I'd like to talk about how we can respond to this passage as followers of Jesus today. So first, we can look to Abraham as a model of faith, a model of what it tangibly means to have faith in Jesus. I don't know about you, but in the, in the Christian tradition that I come from, when people talk about faith in Jesus, it essentially boils down to a single decision or moment. When you, when you pray a specific prayer, when you ask Jesus into your heart, and then God says you can get into heaven when you die. And yes, that's true, but what Paul is talking about here and what Abraham's story shows is also so much more than that. It gives us a much bigger, more all-encompassing picture of what faith, what trust in God is. Yes, of course, our trust in Jesus gives us assurance that we're saved in every way a person can be saved. Yes, of, of course, our trust in Jesus does have key moments in it. But this trust is also an ongoing journey with ups and downs. Our trust in God does concern hope for the distant future, but also total reliance on God to meet our needs and our deepest longings here and now. And excitingly, this, this trust even means getting to participate and partner with God and his master plan to bring healing and new life and blessing to the world. We won't always get it right. Neither did Abraham. But Paul challenges us to follow in Abraham's footsteps as his children and have the same kind of radical, active, present and future trust in God that Abraham does. And thinking about this, it challenges us to ask, okay, do I trust in Jesus? Do I trust that I am indeed forgiven? Do I trust that I am part of his family? 
Do I trust that he will meet me in my deepest needs and longings and fears? In what ways am I acting out of trust? In what ways am I acting out of fear? What a challenge. Amen. But again, Abraham is not only a model, which brings us to another way I think we can respond. As we consider this passage, I think it can also challenge and reshape how we, as followers of Jesus, approach the Old Testament as our scripture. There can be a common misconception among Christians that the Old Testament is essentially a book of commands and thou shalt nots from an angry God. The reality is that the Old Testament, yes, has laws in it, but the vast majority of it is actually narratives, it's stories, it's poems. In other words, the the Old Testament is not a book of laws. It's a large collection of books, a small handful of which have some laws in them. And even in these books with laws in them, the Torah or the Pentateuch, the laws and commandments, they're set within a bigger story that time and again highlights the centrality of faith, the centrality of total trust and reliance upon God with the whole of our lives. That's the story. The Old Testament is not irrelevant. It's not obsolete. It's not the old iPhone, which we can now trade in for the shiny new one, right? It's still our scripture. It's still our story. It still speaks to us. And so as Christians, we can rejoice as Paul declares in Romans 3.21 that now, apart from the law, that God's righteousness has been made known. And we can still actively engage and search out and discover how the whole of our Bibles, not just little pieces of it, testify to this beautiful reality and how the whole of our scripture challenges us to follow Jesus by faith. Amen.